Uh, Father, thank you for this book. It's uh, a very uh, rich and powerful book, um, has been for me, and I pray that you would uh, make it so in the lives of my brothers and sisters, my friends, um, fellow pilgrims on this uh, journey toward becoming like Christ. Uh, a great bottom line message for us tonight, and I pray you'd impress it on our minds and our hearts and our spirits. Remind us of it, um, even this week, uh, remind us of it. We love you, we thank you, and pray your spirit would lead us into and through your word. Your word is truth. May it saturate um, our minds and our hearts and cleanse and nourish our spirits tonight. And we pray for it, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Just an aside from last week, how was your week with remembering to walk in the conscious awareness of the Lord. Remember we talked about that last week. So those of you who are here, it's been one week. It seems like one year, I know. <laughs> how, how did that go? No hands, no testimonies, just how did that go? Keep it up this week. Keep, you know, if you're like, oh, wow, thanks for that. I've forgotten everything from last week entirely. Great, then this is your new week. You can start again this week. Uh, if you got one one hour of one day last week, way to go, keep going, add some more to it this week, just keep going, practice the conscious awareness, the conscious awareness of the presence of God in your life, so keep doing that, that was for free, that was from last week, okay, this week, Ecclesiastes, questions, what would it take for you to have joy in life, that's a question to yourself, don't shout out any answers. <laughs> um, infinite money. Perfect health. Significance. Security. Meaning. Purpose. What would it take for you to have joy in life? On one of the... Um, their, their adventures, one of the adventures I went on, hmm, gosh, probably 15 or 16 years ago now, we had the privilege of going to Kenya uh, to see an orphanage there that we were prayerfully contemplating, should we get involved with this orphanage? Fantastic trip, wonderful children, my goodness. Uh, they decided to take us on a side trip up to this little town called Katale, which is on the border of Uganda. So if you remember your Kenyan geography, okay, over here is east, and Kenya butts up against Uganda here. Ethiopia is just to its north, okay? So we're up here on the border with, uh, of Uganda, a little town called Katale. And we went to, as you can imagine, they always love to have you come to their church. And so we went to their church on Sunday, and it was a marvelous experience of standing up for about three hours. I just thought, seriously, can we sit down now? But we stood up and worshiped, and they had a great, it was a great um, worship service. They translated, um, well, good parts of it for us. We couldn't really figure out all the time what was going on, but you just go with it. 
So we had a great time. Well, some family then invited us. There were one, two, there were three of us, and they invited us to lunch, as they as they always do. Very very hospitable. Well, as as we walked into the um, the little village, um, you know, let your mind wander to what you think that looked like, and that's probably what that looked like. Um, little sort of huts things. And we remembered as we walked in, we heard a chicken, you know, as they were taking us to the, to the home where we were going to be, we heard a chicken. And guess what we had for lunch? <laughs> chicken. Um, they, I, I'm not sure that was the only one, but that was a very important um, animal. <laughs> in their life, and they seemingly, willingly uh, gave that so that we could enjoy lunch with them. So they, they offered us their best. Um, what they had, uh, you could imagine, it would fit in um, half of a footlocker, everything they owned. Everything in the world would have fit in, you know, a box about like that. By our standards, they had nothing. Dirt floor. Um, they put a, a, a white sheet over the furniture for us. Um, by our standards, they <laughs> were dirt poor. And yet, I have never experienced such rich worship, contentment, and joy. You've had similar experiences in places. What would it take for you to have joy in life? Their perspective on life what they had, what they didn't have, what they felt like life owed them. You understand what I'm saying? Was it such a good place? All they had was ours, and they were joyful. It was a marvelous experience. 15 or 16 years ago, I still remember it like it was yesterday because it was so powerful their contentment and their joy with life because of their perspective on life. It made, it made all the difference to their joy, their perspective, all the difference. Tonight as we go to Ecclesiastes, you live in the same place I live, and how do you, sometimes when you walk out the door in the morning, uh, how do you walk out when life just doesn't add up? Uh, when you, when what you see 
uh, what, what you see happen to others or experiencing yourself isn't neat and tidy. If you haven't had the opportunity to turn your phone off yet, go ahead and do that. I want, Amber, I want Amber found. I want to pray for Amber that she's found. But go ahead and flip that to silent. Uh, when what you see happen to others or experience yourself isn't neat and tidy, when life sometimes doesn't make sense, is vexing, perplexing, and in many ways beyond your finding out. You walk out of your door, you get in your car, you drive to wherever you're going to drive, and life hasn't added up for you that day. What do you need? Perspective. Ecclesiastes is a book of perspective. A book of perspective. And I hope to persuade and convince you of that by the time we're finished. I don't see Ecclesiastes as a downer of a book. I see it as a very realistic view of life from the pen of Solomon. And we'll walk through that and I'll explain to you why I think he's written what he's written. But Ecclesiastes is a book on perspective for those who live life under the sun. Perspective is what makes all the difference in your life and in mine. So those days when you walk out in the morning and you think, this just doesn't add up. I want you to rethink your perspective. Days when you do walk out the door and you say, praise the Lord, life is good today. That's perspective. Hold on to that. It's all about perspective. And Solomon's going to help us understand that. The basics of Ecclesiastes, more than likely, it's fairly well agreed to that it's Solomon. And I think it's in his later years. I think he wrote Song of Solomon at an earlier stage in his life. He writes Proverbs, and they're being collected kind of all during his life. And if you had the chance to read Ecclesiastes, you can see that in Ecclesiastes, especially toward the end, he's writing most of his life is in the rearview mirror now. And he's looking back on life. And that's the importance of what he's doing. He's going to put a, a perspective on life from the wisest man in the world. And that's what he gives us in, Ecclesi in Ecclesiastes. So probably Solomon in his later years could be, uh, you know, 940 B.C., could be 930. Um, some people think it was compiled as late as 200 B.C. Um, okay, I think it was probably more like 940, 935, but I don't know. It was written later in his life, though. Uh, where... Unknown, but if it's Solomon, it's probably, he probably wrote it in Jerusalem. Why did he write it? Though the world and our walk under the sun are often subject to frustration, man can still accept his circumstances, even rejoice in them, and find strength in God to take life as it comes with a smile on his face. That's why Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. Our world and our walk under the sun are subject to frustration. You know that if you've lived any number of years whatsoever. 
Be that as it may, man can still accept his circumstances, even rejoice in them, and find strength in God to take life as it comes with a smile on his face. What a great perspective on life. The contrast word that he uses a lot in Ecclesiastes is vanity. Best way to describe, not define, the best way to describe vanity is, you know what a soap bubble is, right? Pop the soap bubble, what's left is vanity. Pop the soap bubble, whatever's left over, that's vanity. So when he compares and contrasts things, what he's talking about, vanity, is boop, pop the soap bubble, just that little bit of junk that's left, that's vanity. So that's what he's comparing and contrasting. Uh, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is um, a tour guide. He's going to lead us through his thinking and down a road to show us the perspective, in his opinion, as the wisest man who's ever lived, this is how we should view life. This should be our perspective on life. And again, it's a very realistic view. I don't think it's a downer view. Very realistic, and I'll show you that. I think it's Solomon. He's a sage looking back over his life. He's had it all tried it all, and denied himself nothing. I don't think, however, that he's a warped, bitter old man. I don't think that's what's happened to him. I think he's tried all these things. He's lived all these different facets of life, and now he's writing back and saying, this is how you should view life. This should be your perspective on life. I know I've tried it all, and this is the truth. That's how Solomon, I believe, is writing Ecclesiastes. He's watched God's unseen hand work in ways he can't understand, predict, or control. And so he gives his people a godly perspective, a godly attitude regarding status significance, meaning, and joy for life here under the sun. To live any other way is, poop, pop the soap bubble. To live any other way than what Solomon is going to tell you is to embrace vanity. So he has a point to make. He's saying my perspective versus live any other way Vanity. So here we go. Bottom line on Ecclesiastes. Enjoy life with wisdom and responsibility. If you take nothing else away from the book of Ecclesiastes, here's the answer. Enjoy life with wisdom and responsibility. What a great perspective for those of us who especially are in Christ. Enjoy life with wisdom and responsibility. And he's going to define what he means by that as we walk through it. He begins the book, chapters 1 and 2, and he starts off with 
Everything is meaningless or everything is vanity, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. Vanity of vanities. You know, what do people get for all their hard work under the sun? And he goes on and he goes on and he writes and you're going, oh my gosh, this is this book. What is he doing? He's making me depressed when I read it. And he's saying in the first chapter, and I'm going to break it down a little bit here, though life is a grind, man still relentlessly searches for meaning under the sun. Here is the human condition that he starts off with. Though life is a grind, man, mankind, still relentlessly searches for meaning under the sun. True statement. Doesn't matter where you're from, what your background is, etc., etc. Man relentlessly searches for meaning under the sun. And so he begins just by talking about all this stuff is meaningless, it's all vanity. Well, what is all vanity? What is all meaninglessness? He tells us. 12 through 18, he says knowledge can't provide meaning or intellectualism. He does that in 12 through 18. He devoted himself to search for understanding, to explore by wisdom everything being done under under heaven. I observed everything going on under the sun. And really, it's all vanity, like chasing the wind. What's wrong can't be made right. What is missing cannot be recovered. I said to myself, look, I'm wiser than any of the kings who've ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. So I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly. But I learned firsthand that pursuing all this is like chasing the wind. It's all meaningless. What's meaningless, Solomon? Intellectualism, trying to know everything, is meaningless. So he moves on. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I said to myself, so he's tried to be an intellectual. That didn't give him meaning. It didn't give him joy. It didn't give him purpose. So he said, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. And he goes on, he talks about that a little bit. Pleasure cannot provide meaning. Pursuing knowledge isn't going to provide meaning. Pleasure isn't going to provide meaning and purpose. So he moves on. He says, beginning in verse 4, he says, So I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I had everything a man could desire. End of Verse 8, so he's tried achievement. He's tried, verse 9, I become greater than all who lived in Jerusalem before me. My wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Intellectualism didn't help him. Pleasure didn't help him. Achievement, possessions, anything you could name, he tried it, dead end. All of this is meaningless. And if you're reading this, uh, if you're reading this book, 
And you're going, oh, man, that's true. All of this stuff is meaningless. So he says, knowledge can't do it. Pleasure can't do it. Possessions and achievement can't do it. He moves on then. He goes on into chapter 2 and he says, so I decided to compare wisdom with foolishness and madness for who can do this better than I, the king? And I thought, wisdom is better than foolishness. Verse 15, ugh, both will die. 17, so I came to hate life because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless, like chasing the wind. I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave to others everything I have earned. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? And if you're a person who was maybe on the periphery of the Jewish community at this time, you'd be going, yeah, yeah, what do people get for all this? What do they get? You're right, Solomon. This is meaningless. So verse 24, so I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please him. But if a sinner becomes wealthy, God takes the wealth away and gives it to those who please him. This too is vanity, meaning go ahead and chase that. But you're going to find out it's meaningless. What's his point? Only vanity awaits those who never enthrone God or dethrone him and push him aside from the center of their lives. That's what he's saying in these first two chapters. A life built on or for itself inevitably results in depression and despair. Only a life built and centered around God can provide meaning, peace, satisfaction, and joy under the sun. The first two chapters are written to those who are trying to live their life without God. What do they find? What's his opening salvo? Meaningless. You're trying to live your life without God? It's meaningless. You're headed down a dead-end road. Nobody could try it better than I tried it. I had more money than you. I had more time than you. I had more everything than you. I've tried it all. Guess what? <laughs> all meaningless. So I learned this at the end. There's nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please him. His first point in, at the end of chapter 2 is life without God will result in meaninglessness. And you said, well, I already knew that. Well, this is written almost 1,000 B.C., Kind of sounds like New Testament, doesn't it? <laughs> Life lived apart from God is meaninglessness, vanity. What's left after the soap bubble pops. That's what life lived apart from God under the sun. Not to mention afterward, life under the sun 
is this. Do you see how he's starting off here? He's meeting his audience where you are. Okay, you're without God. You're trying to push him to the periphery of your life. Guess what? Tried it all. Got the t-shirt. In fact, got a better t-shirt than you have. It's all meaninglessness. It's all vanity. It's all empty. If you're trying to build a life on or for yourself, it will inevitably result in depression and despair. Want to see my t-shirt again? (laughs) Tried it all. I was the king. Empty. Gosh, what, I mean, this is such a powerful perspective he gives us in the first two chapters. Life without God doesn't work under the sun. Not to mention what comes later. Great book. What's he doing? He's taking my perspective and he's making me shift it. I don't think I need God. Maybe I'm a good Jewish youth. I don't think I need God. In fact, I, I think life's pretty good on my own. I can make, I can make this work. And Solomon says, hey, knucklehead. <laughs> Been there, done that, tried it all. It's empty. It's vanity. Life without God doesn't work under the sun. Whoa. Guess what he's going to spend the rest of the book doing? What does life with God look like? And you expect him right now to go, life is like you're carried to heaven on a bed of roses. That's not what he's going to do. He's going to apply wisdom to his life, and he's going to make some statements, and you're going to go, oh, my gosh, is that true? But watch what he does. Watch what he keeps sprinkling in at key places. This is just a brilliant book. So he starts off, life without God doesn't work, results in vanity. What about life with God? So, Solomon would say, so you have a relationship with God. Good. What's your next question? How do we do that? (laughs) Now what? Glad you asked. Chapter (laughs) 3. Life with God, 3 through 12. How does he begin? For everything, there is a season. You're living your life with God. If you haven't encountered these seasons, and I'm sure every person in this room has, you know there are seasons to life. Here is a sage looking back over his life, saying there are seasons. What What is he starting to tell us? This is what wisdom looks like. This is what wisdom looks like. First point that he begins to make in chapter, all of chapter 3. A very clever little statement. God is sovereign and you aren't. You go, well, who doesn't know that? Huh, how many times do you or I try to play God every day? Probably you don't because you're Christians. Let me tell you how many times I try to play him a day. Guess how many times it works? That's right, zero. (laughs) Pop the soap bubble. That's how many times it works. So he spends chapter 3 saying, you know what wisdom looks like? Let's, Let's remind ourselves of who God is and who you are. God is sovereign and you aren't. Oh, lesson one. 
God is sovereign and you aren't. He decrees times of pain as well as times of pleasure. And he also notes what's done eventually gets undone. Isn't that interesting? What's done many times gets undone in the next season. Man, that's just, that is wisdom. God is sovereign, verses 14 and 15. And I know that whatever God does is final. Nothing can be added to it or taken from it. God's purpose is that people should fear him. What is happening now has happened before, and what will happen in the future has happened before because God makes the same things happen over and over again. Why does he do that? To teach man to fear him. God is sovereign, and you aren't. He says in chapter 3, this is Bill's paraphrase, You can't nudge the arm of providence. You try to nudge God's arm. Come on, God, let's do this. I promise you, I'll I'll do this if you do this. You try to nudge his arm to make a decision in your favor. And he goes, you know, what you should really do is you should stop doing that. God is sovereign and you aren't. And it's not like he's kind of an easy pushover guy. He goes, oh, gosh, Bill, you're probably right. I should probably do what you're asking me to do. Gosh, I haven't thought about that before, as well as the other 8 billion things that people are asking of me right now. Can you, aside, can you even imagine that? How many people are there, right? 7 to 8 billion people? Can you imagine the number of people talking and thinking at the same time, and God has no trouble knowing where each of those thoughts is coming from. He's not like Superman. (laughs) He's like completely other. (laughs) He is sovereign, and I am not. And to try to nudge his arm to make a decision or point in my direction, I can ask. He says I can ask. But to try to nudge him doesn't work. So what does Solomon say at the end of this chapter? It's great. It's not quite at the end, but here's the end of his thought. So I concluded, there is nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. And people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are gifts from God. You see what he's doing? He's reframing our perspective Okay, you say you have a relationship with God. Guess what? Life, you can kind of boil life down here. Everything you can enjoy in life, your eating, your drinking, your work, the fruit of your labor, this is all a gift and a blessing of God. So rejoice in it. Be glad for it. He gave it to you to enjoy. Enjoy it. That's why I think this is not a stodgy old man going, life stinks and I hope I die soon. That's not what he's doing here. He's the sage looking back saying, we've got it all wrong. Eat, drink, enjoy your work, enjoy the fruit of your labor because God gives these blessings and gifts to you to enjoy. Enjoy them. Now, how are we to enjoy them? Like a crazy person? No. 
with wisdom. Enjoy them with wisdom. So he starts, he's fleshing out wisdom, and wisdom begins with God is sovereign and you aren't. Then he goes on in the rest of three through the first part of five, and he says, life isn't fair, so fear God. And you go, who didn't know that? Gotcha. God is sovereign and you aren't. Did you know that? Yes. Is that a great way to reframe your perspective? Yes. How about life isn't fair, so fear God? He walks through all these different things in these chapters. Inequality and oppression remain. Materialism still drives people. Remember he says in 4, 4 through 6, this is great. He says, then I observe that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. He just cuts right to the chase. Envy, bad. I could pull out respectable sins, and we could read the chapter on envy if you wanted to. Trust me, it's there. Then he moves on from materialism still drives people. Isn't that funny? Is there anything new under the sun? This is 1000 BC. What is this? 2020 AD. Roughly 3,000 years. What has changed? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. Do inequality and oppression still remain? Gosh, I hate it, but yes, they do. Materialism still drives people. Relationships, however, are good. Indeed. And he talks about that for a couple of verses. And then he goes into this great thing. He's going to remember popularity is only temporary. This is a great junior high and high school lesson. I wish we would have all heard it then. Because some of us are still struggling under that today. Popularity is only temporary. Then remember, and he talks about you walk in, as you enter the house of God, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. (laughs) What great, great wisdom. Why? Because you may make an impetuous promise to God. And God's going to want you to keep it. Because God wasn't sure you were kidding. So he goes, you know, here's what you need to do. Keep your ears open and keep your mouth shut. When you walk in, you are walking into God's place. You can't just say anything that pops into your mind. That would be bad. Remember, God may call us to account now for our hasty promises to him. God is sovereign, and you aren't. So what does he mean by wisdom? God is sovereign, and you aren't. Life isn't fair, so fear God. He goes on, and he says prosperity, chapter 5 and chapter 6, prosperity isn't always good. And he writes about that for a little while. You go, well, I don't know, Lord, maybe you could test me in that and see. (laughs) How many child stars... Have you ever read about that have good, normal, God-honoring lives? Why? Because prosperity isn't always good. You give too much money to someone too young to understand and appreciate it, handle it, what happens? It messes up their life. 
right? So we have to remember, prosperity isn't always good. If it was, then my brothers and sisters in Katale are very self-deceived. And I'll tell you, they aren't. They are very content and very joyful with what you and I could purchase with $20 or $30. They don't need what we call prosperity. They believe they are prosperous. And they're content. And they're joyful. And they're selfless. Here's another one, chapter 7. Adversity isn't always bad. Right? We always think, oh, you know, I've, I, I wish I could be prosperous and I'd want to avoid, avoid adversity. And Solomon says, you know, prosperity isn't always good and adversity isn't always bad. If you are honest with yourself, do you know the times you have grown the most and the deepest in Christ? You do. It's those times when you are suffering. Those times when you are in adversity. God drew you to himself in a particularly unique way. As an elder board, over 21 years, we've had the privilege of praying for lots and lots of I mean, deathly ill people. I wish I could tell you God has chosen to heal every one of them. He, he hasn't. But those whom he has come back and tell us, I don't really wish this disease on anyone else, but I would not stop this disease because of what it brought me in my relationship with Christ. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. So you could have that taken away, set aside, and you'd never be inflicted with it. Yeah, I wouldn't want that. I'd say bring it because of this over here. What perspective? Prosperity isn't always good. Adversity isn't always bad. He moves in then to the end of chapter 7. He says, but humility is essential. Gosh, this is so good. Humility is essential. You already know this. Oh, humility. Ooh, 7.15. Let's see. Hmm. Oh, well, you can read it. Oh, it's so good. Be humble. Okay, then he goes on and he says, and so is courage. So, humility is essential, and so is courage. And then he fleshes that out in 8, 9, 10, and the first part of 11. Here's what he means by courage. In chapter 8 through 10, he talks about to do what's right, though there are no guarantees it'll pay off in your favor but you do what's right because it's right. It's like the lessons that my father would teach me. This is the right thing to do. Guess what? It may not ever pay off for you or work out for you or work in your favor. Or no one may ever see it to give you credit, but it's the right thing to do, and you do it. That's what he's saying in, right here in these chapters. It takes courage to do right Though there are no guarantees, it'll pay off, right? See, God is sovereign and you aren't. 
You don't know how God is going to work this out under the sun. But this is right to do, and we need to be found doing what's right. So he talks about that for a couple of chapters. He talks about making wise decisions while knowing you're not in control of the outcome. Make wise decisions, but guess what? See, God is sovereign and you aren't. (laughs) You don't know how this decision will work out for you, but you make a wise decision. What's a wise decision? One that lines up with the word of God. That's a wise decision. Have you ever made a wise decision that seemed like to the world a foolish decision? You make the wise decision. God sees what you're doing. Do right, though there are no guarantees it'll pay off. Make wise decisions, knowing you're not in control of the outcome. Oh, yeah. And then, have you ever heard? So there are right and wrong decisions, but there are also left and right decisions. Right? Right and wrong decisions. Um, should I rob a bank or should I not rob a bank? That's a, there's, a right, <laughs> there's a right decision and a wrong decision. Agreed? That's right and wrong. Okay, let's make one that's a little, you're like, well, yeah, rob a bank, okay, great. Um, Gossip. Oh, (laughs) what? What does that mean? (laughs) It means talking about someone without them being in the room. Now, if you're going to say positive things, okay. But let's let's pretend you're going to wander from that. And so you begin gossiping about a person. Is that a right decision or a wrong decision? That's a wrong decision. That's not a right decision. So that was a right and a wrong, right? Right and wrong. You got it. Right and wrong. Left and right decisions are your choice. I have two sons. If they wanted to be doctors, lawyers, engineers, um, whatever they wanted to be, those are left and right decisions. They're not right and wrong. Those are left and right. What, What is your choice? God gives you a choice. What do you want to choose? Has God ever given you a choice before? What's your first thought? This is right and wrong. Maybe not. Maybe he says, what do you want? Well, I I want to live according to your will. Got it? Which one do you want? You want left or right? Uh, But but what's what's right and what's wrong? Because I want to be right smack dab down the center of your will. And the longer you talk with people like this, and I've been there, used to live this way, you can't see this black tape line right here on the stage, but we're going to pretend that this is an edge of a razor blade. And here's where we try to walk. Because if I tip off, this is right, this is wrong, and this is wrong. And I live under this, I try to make myself God and try to see into the future and I go, I-, I need to, I've got to walk the edge of this razor blade. Stop it. It doesn't work that way. God has put us in the Grand Canyon. Don't climb the walls. Walls bad. Walls bad. Walls right and wrong decision. Don't climb the walls. You want to go over this way? Go over this way. You want to go over this way? Go over this way. You're free. You're free. That's part of Solomon's deal. Enjoy life. So many of us can't enjoy life because we're trying to walk the edge of this razor blade. 
It doesn't exist. Sorry, I'm popping the bubble. There is no razor blade for you to walk. There is freedom. There's freedom. Enjoy your freedom. Now don't climb the walls. Climbing the walls is bad. It will result in harm because you won't make it up. You'll come back down. <laughs> but inside here, enjoy. Right? Can you live that way? Say yes. Yes. So right and wrong versus left and right. Some decisions are right and wrong. Get it right as best you can. But some decisions are left and right. Which one do you want? Which one do you want? You go, I want the one that works out best for me. I see some of you nodding your heads. And you've forgotten what God says through Paul in Romans. I will use all things together for good for those who love me and are called according to my purpose. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you telling me, Bill, <laughs> did I hear you correctly? Even if I make the wrong choice, God will use it for good in my life? That's not what I said. That's what God said. I'm just telling you what God said. I don't know how he'll do it, but that's what he says. Some of you, if you could think long enough and hard enough, could name decisions you made that were wrong, and God used them for good. Some of you could name other decisions that were left or right, and in the rearview mirror you said, you know, I'm glad I went left. I could have gone right. I don't know how life would have turned out, but this is good. God's going to use you either way, left or right. You're not sinning. You're not wrong. You're just left or right. Enjoy your freedom, left or right. Don't climb the walls, left or right. Enjoy life. Then he says, great reminder, yay, I'm enjoying life. Then he says in chapter 11, though death is coming. Okay, which is, it takes courage to do right, to make wise decisions, and to enjoy life, though death is coming. Chapter 12, then he goes on, he says, I'm summarizing now, enjoy life with wisdom and responsibility. He's been fleshing out wisdom, he's been fleshing out responsibility. What does it mean to live with wisdom and responsibility? He's spent 11 chapters talking about those things. Summary, be wise enough to remember God. Always take him into account first in every situation. Back to last week's lesson, practicing that conscious awareness of God's presence in your life. Here he is. Yes, uh, in a sense, Jesus is our buddy. I mean, he became flesh so that we could connect with him but he is no less almighty, sovereign God who is completely other and different than you and me and ever will be. He is also this person. <laughs> so he's, he's not like your, your buddy buddy. He's, he's God buddy. <laughs> and so be wise enough to remember God. Always take him into account first 
in every situation. And be responsible in the way you live in light of your accountability to him at death. And you say, well, was that just in Solomon's day? No, sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive rewards that are due us. Not salvation. That is already a done deal. You are not standing before that seat, the judgment seat of Christ, to decide if you get in or you don't get in. You're already in. It's just if any rewards have accrued to you, then the Lord will make you aware of those rewards then. Or if you get no rewards, then like 1 Corinthians 3, you pass through the flames coming through on the other side, but everything else is burned up. You'll make it through, but there's, in a sense, nothing to show for it. New Testament teaches the same thing as the Old Testament. Be responsible in the way you live in light of your accountability to God at death. Be wise, be responsible, and enjoy life. Enjoy life with a reverential awe and respect of him. Fear is the word that we used, in, or that God used in Proverbs. Enjoy life with a reverential awe and respect of him and obey his word. All right. Life without God, life with God. And he spends... 3 through 12, talking about what does life with God looks like. And he says, enjoy life, live it with wisdom, and live it with responsibility. Enjoy life with wisdom and responsibility. It's a great life, is what Solomon is telling you. This is a great life. The other life, take it if you want it. But if you don't live this way, there's just vanity awaiting you under the sun, not to mention what comes later. You go, okay, enjoy life. That's the first thing. Tonight when you leave, we're going to go through some illustrations of this. I want you to enjoy life with wisdom and with responsibility. Those are sort of the guardrails that keep us from going crazy. Wisdom and responsibility. But enjoy life. This is not a downer book. He says, I'm looking back, and this is what I'm telling you. Enjoy life, because everything you have is from God. So enjoy what you eat. Enjoy what you drink. Enjoy your work and the fruit of what you do. These are all good gifts from God. Enjoy them. Do you think God really means, oh, he probably doesn't really mean enjoy. You know, Bill, you know Hebrew, and he probably really doesn't, he probably really doesn't mean enjoy, does he? Because I don't know about that. Guess what it says in the Hebrew? Enjoy. Guess what he wants you to do? Enjoy. He gave you life. Enjoy it. Oh, okay. Let's talk about some examples. Here we go. Two circles. Ready? We're going to boil all life down into two circles. All right. The first one we're going to call, let's see. Oh, yeah, wait. Okay, I got to do this. 
So Solomon's offer is a perspective and an attitude. With the right perspective or attitude on life, we can enjoy it being content in every circumstance. Though the world and our walk under the sun are often subject to frustration beyond our avoiding, controlling, or correcting, we can still accept our circumstances, even rejoice in them, and find strength in God to take life as it comes with a smile on our face. A smile on our face. Amazing. What's his prescription? All right. Here is wise and responsible. Okay? There is wise and responsible living. What's out here? Mm. Not wise... Not responsible. Okay? We good? All right, you can go home. That's it. There it is. Live in here, don't live here. All right, let's look at some examples. He says, enjoy life within the boundaries of wisdom. So be wise enough to remember God. Always take him into account first in every situation. And responsibility. Enjoy life with wisdom and responsibility. Be responsible in the way you live in light of your accountability to God at death. All right. Guess what we do? We start trying to play out of bounds. Sometimes we try to find security, which can mean control, significance, which could mean self-worth, meaning or purpose, and joy in life elsewhere. Where am I supposed to find them? But what do I do? I start playing out of bounds. And so I go out here to try to find things. What's one thing I try to find? Okay, so like in your marriage, if our emotional self-worth is based on our spouse, all right, so I'm gonna put, I'm gonna put my marriage out here. And I might even put my spouse out here, too. If our emotional self-worth is based on our spouse, then there's likely high dependence and control and little trust. My wife is out here. What can I influence? Only the things that are in here. But my wife is out here. Hmm. Well, what do I do? Well, I start playing out of bounds. And I want to change my circle. And I want to bring my wife into what I can influence or control. Because it's not about her, it's about me and what I need. So if I can control her or I have an unhealthy dependence on her, 
there's likely little trust because what do I need? I need to control her so that I can feel good. Same thing could happen with my marriage. Okay? So there's one. Let's try something else. How about this one? If our security or self-worth comes from our family, traditions, their reputation, or their reflection on us, then likely there's high control on behavior and little control, uh, little uh, shepherding of a heart. What do I care about? I just want that child's behavior to be controlled so that I don't look like a bad parent. Right? And so what do I do? Here's my child. My child is out there. Uh-oh. I got a lot of stuff wrapped up in what that looks like. So I've got to extend my circle out there. This is not wise and not responsible. Consequently, what comes with, whether it's my marriage or my kids, what happens when I start doing this? No joy. Because I'm absorbed with controlling that other person. I hope this is making some sense. Marriage, family. Uh, how about this one? In our acceptance by others, if our self-worth and or security depends on belonging to or being accepted by one or more peer groups, then, depending on how we're feeling about those relationships at the time, there can be mood swings and inordinate focus on their injustices toward us or a depressed sense of self-worth. We become dependent on our perception of how they see us. and We live life in the social mirror. Did I just leave everybody? You tracking with me? All right. So let's, let's say that this is a person or a group that I really need to feel a part of for some reason. On the days when they accept me, how do I feel? Woohoo! Thumbs up! On the days that they don't accept me or they're critical of me, what happens to my self-worth? Goes in the tank. What happens when it goes in the tank? How could they be so unjust? They're just so... All because they won't treat me as I expect them or need them to. I'm no longer living in a wise and responsible manner. I'm living not wise, not responsible. Consequently, there's no joy. Do you know we have a lot of joyless Christians? Just from these examples I've covered, you go, well, this, none of this applies to me. Okay, I got a couple more. Oh, how about, how about now? Anybody seen what's happened to the old stock market the past week? Anybody's future tied up in that? The answer is no. 
The answer is no. Where is your future tied up? In the hands of your loving father, who is in absolute control of the stock market. Your future is not tied up in the stock market. I get it. You go, yes, it is. I can go, ah. But your future is not in the stock market. Your future is in God. But guess what happens? If our security or self-worth depends on our net worth, then whatever threatens that net worth creates anxiety, protectiveness, and defensiveness. Do you know the number of people who are more on edge this week? Can you imagine it was higher than normal? Why? And I'm even talking about Christians here. Why? Because this out here is not wise and responsible living. We've moved into not wise and not responsible. What does God's word say? I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. Quit Quit living out here. Live in here. No joy. Anxiety, protectiveness, defensiveness. What happens to our joy? Whoop, it goes. Why? Because of our anxiety. I get it. And I, I, I don't tell you I've conquered these things. I have not conquered these things. I'm just telling you, I'm a little wiser, not than you. I'm just a little wiser about me to know when I start living in that place. And one of the great barometers for that is my joy. If my joy goes, then I start asking, okay, what's going on? Why am I living outside the inside ring? Why have have I moved out here? Okay, how about this one? In our work, and I'm not going to say this doesn't apply to women, but not being a woman, I don't get how women are versus I get how men are and with our work. I can speak as one. I can't speak necessarily for women. I just don't understand. I really don't even understand women still today. (laughs) I love you, but I don't get you whatsoever. Oh, my gosh, that's so funny. What a rabbit trail. Somebody, did I tell you this one already? It's so funny. Um, So we've been married this July. We will have been married, see, 1985. Is that 35 years? 35 years, wow. So I had a 20-something, they're getting ready to get married. And they came up to me and they said, um, um, Dr. Egner, uh, what is the one most important thing you've learned about being married 34 at the time, 34 years? And I said, really? You want the one thing? Yes, yes, please, the one, just one, the one thing. And I said, you ready? Here it comes. Write it down. I said, after 35 years, Laurie is no more a boy today than she was 35 years ago. And I am no more a girl than I was 35 years ago. And they went, what? And I said, I'll see you in about 35 years, and you'll go, I totally understand what you're talking about. If you ask me today, how does my wife think? I don't know. She 
she thinks great things, but I don't know how her mind works. Guess what? She doesn't know how mind works any better either. It's just, it's a mystery. God has made us different, and that's a wonderful thing. But it's different, and it doesn't really ever change. And so you just got to say, okay, wonderful. Oh, that's a side. Let's come back, come back, come back. Squirrel, squirrel. In our work, if our self-worth, our purpose, and our identity center on work, men, it does. Just admit it. It does. Then whatever threatens it, we think, must be overcome. Because if I don't have that, then I don't have anything. That's my identity. That's my everything. It's not until I understand a person retires that they begin to get wisdom even on their career. Men, in our work, because our self-worth, purpose, and identity center on work, guess what happens when our boss praises us? Let's go out to eat, honey! Guess what happens when the boss criticizes us? Where are all those boxes? Are they still in the garage, in the attic, or the garage? Because I got to start boxing up my stuff. We just crash. We're lying on the floor. We're, we're pathetic. Anyway, in our work, when we start giving other people that kind of stuff, that kind of power, guess what happens? There's no joy. Why? Because I'm not living wisely and responsibly in light of God's truth about me. I'm living according to other people or other situations or whatever, okay? All right, we're going to be done in just a second. The joyful, Christ-centered life, where could there be more security than in God's wise, loving, good, and sovereign control? Where could there be more significance than being known as a child of the true king? Where could there be more meaning for life than in his service? Where could there be more joy in life than walking in his will and his ways? And what's the result? We get into trouble when we start wandering out of bounds. Solomon is reminding us, don't wander out of bounds. Out there is meaninglessness. Out there is vanity. Out there is a pop soap bubble. Don't go out there. There's nothing for you out there. It's all right in that circle. Perspective. Get perspective, believers, followers of Christ. Get perspective. These are a package deal. Security, significance, meaning, joy. What a great package deal that God gives us. Because our self-worth isn't determined by God, uh, it isn't determined by us, it's determined by God and the price he paid to redeem us in his son.
You want to know what you're worth? It's not what your boss, son, daughter, uh, paycheck, um, friend group. It, those are all interesting, but those should not be directional. What should be directional? What God thinks of you and what God has told you. And he says, enjoy life with wisdom and responsibility, but enjoy life. You're mine. You're mine. And if somebody looks down their nose at you, they go, aren't you a Christian? You go, yeah. Isn't life great? No. Why not? Why not? What do you mean by that? You take them through Ecclesiastes. Question, are you enjoying life right now? You can circle yes or no. What do you need to take to the Lord and ask him to empower you to stop doing? Maybe there's some out-of-bounds, joy-stealing attitudes or attempts that are going on in your life right now. What do you need to take to the Lord and ask him to empower you to start doing? Remember him. Rest in his sovereignty. Thank him and live responsibly in light of your future accountability to him. The perspective this week ought to be enjoy life with wisdom and responsibility from our sage, Solomon, who shares the word of the Lord with us. For next week, 1 Kings 9, 10, and 11 will resume the life of Solomon, sort of his final days. We'll take a look at those next week. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the perspective that Solomon puts on life, that you've given us life to enjoy Thank you for that, for that freedom that you've given us. Thank you for that. Help us to live wisely according to your word. Help us to live responsibly, knowing that one day we will give an account to you uh, for every word we've spoken, for every deed we've done. Uh, and you know them all already, but we uh, stand um, responsibly before you to say we know that that comes. And so help us to enjoy life, uh, but to do it wisely and to do it with responsibility. And I pray that this would be a great week for every person hearing the sound of my voice, that this coming week they would enjoy life and uh, see it as a good gift from your hand. We thank you and we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.